Hello, my name is Lance Weiler. I'm a storyteller and director of the Columbia University School of the Arts Digital Storytelling Lab. You're listening to Columbia DSL's Sandbox, a podcast where we explore new forms and functions of storytelling. Today we're joined by Michael Rao, who's a theater director and professor at Stanford University. It took us a year and a half to build the piece out, to play test it, to really figure out what was working in the piece and what didn't work in the piece. And in terms of figuring out that sort of like empathic, emotional leap, it wasn't so much about like how many details you give or, or share, but how to give an audience time and space to process these things. So, Michael, maybe maybe we could start with some background, you know, um, how you came to do the work that you do, what some of your path has been uh, to date. I started off as a theater director. I got my MFA at Columbia. While I was there, I kind of dabbled in making site-specific work, so like a play that would happen outdoors where the audience would move from one location to the next. Made a couple short pieces while I was a grad student that sort of played around with those ideas and I found that to be really satisfying. Like I really liked the feeling of as an audience member moving from one place to another as opposed to an audience that just sits in the same chairs for the entire time like it felt like more cinematic to me and and exciting so i had that idea i was like oh this is cool i like this and then kind of went off graduated and started just working as a theater director in a bunch of different places and was doing operas and musicals and and then Seven, eight years after that, I just became tired of of <laughs> of making plays always in the same way, always for a, a group of audience. And I started to try and think about, uh, I had two kind of like moments of crisis where I was like, okay, I, I, I want to change the way that I make work. The first thing that I wanted to change is I wanted to think about the individual audience experience more deeply and to give people more personal experiences because I was, you know, like when you make an opera, that's like 500 people in an audience and it felt more and more like impersonal to me. And so I thought, can I make something as opposed to making something for a lot of people all at once? Can I make something really small? And, and then the other thing that sort of changed for me is that I felt increasingly the way that people were making theater, talking about theater, thinking about theater, had nothing to do with the amount of technology that, that sort of permeated our lives. I kept feeling like um, so much of the ways in which I experience like friendships, uh, romantic relationships, are all sort of mediated through emails, through text messages, through, and very little of that was showing up in the theater that I was making. So th those two thoughts of like, I want to make something more personal. And I also want to explore this relationship 
with technology ended up with me kind of not taking a, a full step back, but allowing myself to kind of make projects that explored these kinds of areas of theater. So that's that's kind of where it started. I made this piece with a friend of mine called Temping as our first sort of like attempt to do this or to explore these ideas. But anyway, Temping is a, uh, it's a show for one audience member with no actors where uh, all you do is uh, you, you sit in a small office cubicle and all you do is office work. So you're doing like, um, you're answering emails, you're answering uh, voicemail messages, you uh, do a whole lot of work in Excel, but within those actions and tasks, a story starts to emerge about a company and about some of your coworkers and in exploring, like if you've ever been like CC'd on an email and read down to like sort of like figure out what el- what people have been talking before you got included on that email. I, it was all about sort of like ways in which people communicate in an office and intimacy and then also about death. The company that we invented is based off a number of real companies that do life expectancy calculations for insurance companies. And all they do is figure out how long people will live based off of a couple factors. And and it's a real job and and people go to their offices every day and, and do this. And we just basically took that work and gave it to our audience members. And so what you would do is sit in this office cubicle, respond to emails and calculate life expectancies. And then we invented this sort of theatrical mechanic that came out of that, that each time you would figure out in Excel how long someone had left to live, the lights in the room would change, this music would start playing, your computer screen would shut off, and your printer would turn on and print out um, a picture of that person and a little description about who they are or a, a moment in their life. So you could kind of both contrast the like sterile number calculation process along with like, oh, this is a real human being that has hopes and dreams. And as soon as you finished reading that, then the lights return to normal, your computer screen would turn back on, the office cubicle would come back to life. And so it was about th- that kind of like tension between between these two things. Um, so so that's <laughs> that's a really long background in terms of like how I got started doing the stuff that I do. Well, thank you for that, Michael. I, I'm wondering if you could maybe lean into there's some interesting things aesthetically that are happening in that piece, and it feels like there's a moment where you you get to kind of feeling like you want to you want to do the work in a different way, right? You, you've been working within theater and you, you've been making a number of plays. You, you, you had kind of excelled at that. And you got to a point where you said, I'm interested in this idea of this tension, you know, potentially between what that process is and then this idea of agency that sits in this digital realm of where we are today. Um, the technology that's kind of all around us, the mobile devices, the browsers, even in that... Um, 
temping example, the show that you're mentioning, you, you're using those things at play. You're using spreadsheets as a way to convey a story. You're firing up old printers and, and, and having an emotional resonant moment from all of a sudden uh, somebody's face is coming out and those numbers are now tied to a human. Uh, can, you, can you talk about like some of the like the way that you were approaching the aesthetics of that particular work, you know, and how that differed from how maybe you were working traditionally when you were working around some of those other theater uh, pieces? I, there's two things. What was starting to frustrate me about theater was this idea that um, the people would kind of say like, oh, the most important thing about theater is the, is the, human body like the lived experience of an actor on stage and and the communal experience of an audience and i i kept thinking about that and i really i personally like you can totally disagree with me but i was like i don't think that that's actually what's important for me what what is important about theater is this um emotional connection this sort of like empathic leap that when you watch a play, you sort of project onto the character. You go like, oh, that character is dealing with pain or love or, or sadness or, you know, and and I now either feel some of that or understand some of that. And I'm I'm identifying in some small ways with this person. Like, that's what became important to me not necessarily just the fact that there's like a living, breathing person standing in front of me. And I wanted to see if I could pull that off in a play where there weren't any living bodies. So like the, the challenge of temping, the, the, the place where I started with that piece was, can I make a play without any actors? So when you experience temping, you will never see a living person. You're just alone in a room doing this office work. But what that does instead, like I, I've often talked to people about that piece as like, it's a play that you read, not a play that you see. And so instead you get an email from a character who uh, is this sort of like really gruff, mean office manager. Uh, people have like whole, like invent whole stories and personalities about this person based off this one email exchange that you have with them. And that same kind of empathic leap, that sort of like emotional connection to a character of like, wow, this person is seemingly having a really bad day and kind of taking it out on me. And I wonder why. And I wonder uh, what's going on with them. And is there anything I can do like that, that emotional transfer or that, I guess, like emotional labor became really, really interesting for me and also like creates a really powerful experience for an audience that oftentimes the leap that people make when they don't have a full amount of information is more powerful than when things are explicitly represented for them. And that became really exciting for me. And what I've been trying to figure out as I kept sort of exploring this area or this, this kind of genre is like, what what's the right amount of information that make people understand enough about what's going on, but also leaves enough empty space for them to fill in their own story or fill in 
a, a story that they're interested in. And, and I haven't quite figured out what that rubric is, but that's become a thing that's really, really uh, fascinating to me. When I'm listening to you talk about it, I'm wondering, you know, were there places that you were drawing inspiration from? Were there forms or different, you know, works that you said, oh, that's, there's something interesting there in, in terms of, in regards to understanding that dynamic of, you know, the potential of the difference between reading and seeing or the, you know, the ability, you know, like the balance between information or lack thereof. Was there anything that you were using or that you were looking at in, in regards to when you were thinking about modeling some of that or experimenting with some of that? In the theater, we talk about this a lot. That's part of like what, how theater works is that, is that the audience will decide to fill in blanks for you. You know, that they've all agreed to pretend that this person on stage is not who their character is, you know, that they're, that they're acting, you know, there's everyone's employing the sort of like magical, what if this thing happened? And that's how you can like, you know, like bring a, a puppet of a dragon on stage and everyone knows it's a puppet, but people will still like be scared by it or because there's this like fictional magical circle thing that happens in the theater. And I started to think about like, you can take that idea of like extrapolation uh, of, a, of an emotional leap and apply it to these digital technologies and let people fill stuff in. It took us a year and a half to build the piece out, to play test it, to really figure out what was working in the piece and what didn't work in the piece. And in terms of figuring out that sort of like empathic emotional leap, it wasn't so much about like how many details you give or, or share, but how to give an audience time and space to process these things. Like the work tasks are pretty easy. Like we wanted to make sure that anyone um, who kind of knew how to use a computer could get through the piece. So we made it really, really simple to do everything. And when we first started playtesting it, we had imagined it would take about 45 minutes to an hour. And people were flying through the show in like 15 minutes or less. And it was because uh, they wouldn't fully read everything or they'd just kind of skim things and go on to the next task that like they had felt like this pressurized office situation of like, oh, I got to I gotta be a good temp. I got to like do all of the tasks that I'm being asked to do in an office. And we realized that that was almost preventing the sort of like reflection that we wanted an audience to have to like think more deeply about who these people were. And that's when we introduced the like light changing, computer screen turning off, music playing mechanic that kind of like removed you from that office for a brief moment and then instead allowed you to like quietly read something or to like quietly think about the other characters. So I think the answer to that of like how we we figured out that was about was less about like here's what we need to tell the audience to do or to know, but instead here's some time that we can let the audience be present in the story or like think about the story. 
Because what you're talking about is that tension when they step into a piece that has no actors. And in the case, you're sitting down at a, at, at a, a computer, you're in a cubicle. There's certain behaviors that are associated with being in front of a computer, you know, like how you interact with browsers, you know, tabs, how you're kind of clicking all over the place. You're multitasking. What can I click on now? What can I click on here? What does that mean? And then they were potentially missing elements, you know, like where you're talking about, like all of a sudden a 45 minute piece going down to 15 minutes. It's interesting because that's all that tension of task versus story, the balance of that, right? And so what you're saying is those moments of reflection, those moments where the room changed state in some way, gave you that breath, gave you the ability to allow for a moment of reflection from. And I think that those things are really fascinating in terms of thinking about the work and how you design the work, um, because it's almost like it's an understated it's an understated thing in a certain sense, you know, because I think a lot of the work tends to want to be overprescribed, you know, because the fear of like all of a sudden, oh, my gosh, I'm going to let somebody sit down at a at a computer and they're going to be able to do anything that they want there and they're going to be using spreadsheets. How do I know they're not going to just, you know, launch in and start creating their own spreadsheet? There's, there's all these emergent behaviors that you have no idea about. Right. And so I think it's interesting. You know, it's like, how do you find that balance between over, you know, like too much control of something versus allowing it to be emergent in some way. And maybe that speaks to the amount of testing that you did over that year and a half. But that balance, you know, trying to find that feels like I'd be interested to know how, you know, how has that informed other work that you're thinking about or other work that you're currently making? So after I finished temping, I like started really deep diving into other kinds of sort of like interactive theater and immersive performances and like even like went off like the serious deep end into like LARPing and like Nordic LARPing and like LARP theory and all this kind of stuff. And and it was really after doing that research and way after I finished that piece that there was this sort of like brilliant Nordic LARP theorist that talked to me about how uh, I really effective interactive experience interweaves action and story so that you as the character or the audience member do something that you have a specific task that then creates a story and then you have like a moment to experience to like reflect on that story and that story then compels you to a different action so that you have like a circle of I do something, a story happens. And because a story happens, it propels me to do something else. And, and if you like sort of braid or, or, or keep spinning that cycle of action, story, story, action, then you can create really, really deep and interesting experiences as opposed to more traditional kinds of entertainment where you know, if you're watching a play, you're just watching story. Or if you're like, say, like playing a video game, it's all sort of actions. It's all things that you do. And then the story sort of like happens in the background. So just to step back for a second for anybody who's not familiar with what LARPing is, it's live action role playing, right? And and the the individual that you were talking about, what was that individual's name? And do you have any 
interesting resources for anybody that will want to take a deep dive into LARPing? There's this sort of framework called the Mixing Desk of LARP. It's a Creative Commons um, framework, and it's a design tool to help people create live-action role-playing games. What are the design choices that you're making? What are the ways in which you're creating this? What matters to you as a as a creator? And so if if certain things like absolute fidelity towards a specific environment matter, make these series of design choices. If fantasy, imagination matter to you in some sense, make these set of design choices, you know, like how much agency do you want to give your players? Do you want to keep them really tightly on a track towards a specific experience? Make these sets of design choices. If you want to give them a set of like really open-ended like uh, experiences that then they kind of create their own story out of, make these sets of design choices. Bjark Peterson was the guy who talked to me about the whole interweaving action and story. Can you speak to something where maybe you were surprised by the results, either in temping or in other projects, where you thought something was going to go a certain way and then it it went a totally different way than expected? And maybe that even yielded some type of a failure. And within that failure, you came out the other side with something that you learned that you were able to apply. I mean, I feel like that's my general like mode of making things is like failing. Uh, I mean, I, you know, temping at first was just a joke that like I would say to my friends. I would be like, yeah, I'm going to make a, a show where you just do office work and you think about death. And everyone told me this is the worst idea I've ever heard. Like what a terror, like no one will want to ever do something or watch that or see that. For the longest time as I was like building it, I thought like, oh, this is, this is going to be something that I do for like five or six friends and, and that will be it. Amazingly, just because of sort of who who heard about it and who was interested in it, it ended up having like this like really nice long uh, life after I, I figured it out. Um, since making that piece, I've made a number, a couple other pieces that are just for people who are either alone in a room or alone going for a walk or alone um, experiencing some things. And oftentimes to play test them, it's really hard because you don't know what that other person is experiencing. Like you can kind of talk to them at the end and be like, how was it? And people will, oh, I liked it or I didn't. Or, you know, you can ask them really specific questions, but ultimately their experience is their own. And it became almost sort of frustrating for me um, or difficult for me to figure out like, okay, everyone's going to have their own individual experience. How do I as a creator, figure out how to make it work for everyone. And so I, I think the 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 ways in which like I sort of like failed is that I eventually just gave up on that idea. I I, I decided like I, I will just either drive myself crazy trying to make this thing completely bulletproof. The thing that I like learned and had to really let go of was that um I can't 
kind of control all aspects of an experience. And as much as I would want people to always have the same kind of like happy, consistent aesthetic experiences that I had to also, when I like made this big shift to focusing on people's individual experience, I, I had to let go a certain amount of consistency that feels really scary as an artist when you want to always, when so much of my training had been about, here's what you do to please the maximum number of people consistently all at the same time. I'm just interested in, in two, two, two things. Um, one is what you find yourself kind of challenged by as you move forward in the work that you're making. And the other is what do you find inspiring about the work that you're making? Right now, the piece that I'm working on has both one and the same. Um, and I'm, I'm going to be really kind of vague about it because I, uh, I don't want to promise too much in terms of like what that experience is going to be. But the, the big question that I'm trying to answer now that is also I'm thrilled by, but also like challenged by is to sort of break the boundaries of an experience that happens only for an hour. I, I've been thinking a lot about serialized storytelling, about like the satisfaction that we get from huge narratives um, in terms of shows that run for multiple seasons, the huge world of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, how those stories over years have been unfolding for us. And while I don't have huge plans in terms of that, I have been thinking about you know, so much of the theater has been designed to take place for one hour or two hours at most on an evening, usually Thursday through Sunday. The challenge of the next piece that I'm working on is to, to think about designing an experience that takes um, a couple weeks, that maybe isn't going to be that isn't going to ask for your focus for that entire time. But can I instead think about storytelling over uh, over a month as opposed to over a couple of hours? Like, wh- how do I make that kind of experience? How do I, like, what will come out of that? Um, and what will be the challenges of that? Because I think one of the things that I'm really excited about that digital technology allows us to do is to let people choose when they want to experience a story, right? That our audience has so much more control of, okay, uh, I have these X number of hours today. I'd like to watch this specific television show that I'm interested in, or I have these 15 minutes, I'm going to read this thing. So how do I, as a theatrical creator, design an experience that uses that particular affordance of technology to spread the storytelling over a month that maybe culminates with a live experience at the end of that month. That's where I am right now. Like that's the the thing that I'm struggling with and challenged by. And I have some specific ideas that I'm working on. Just one last thing. Is there, is there anything that you wish that you would have known you know, prior, and I know this is a big question, but like, is there one thing that you wish somebody would have told you that could have saved you a considerable amount of time 
in the work that you do. One thing that would have been, you would have been like, that is really good advice. I wish somebody would have told me that before I had to, you know, go through X, Y, or Z over a period of time to figure it out. Thinking about transparency in storytelling versus secrecy in storytelling. I think for a long time, I had thought about how to structure my my storytelling experiences as a series of surprises, right? When you design something like this, you, you really need to think about these big reveals because those tend to make an audience go like, oh, wow, like I couldn't believe that that would ever happen. And I, I thought that part of what I had to do was both design those things and make sure that the audience couldn't figure those them out, could never see them coming. And then they'd be like thrilled and, and delighted by them. And then as I kind of moved into more interactive audience focused work, I realized that actually being transparent about letting people know this experience contains X, Y, and Z, and being really explicit about pathways oftentimes would be just as effective. Um, the example that I was given that I keep thinking about again and again is that you as an experienced designer could spend a whole lot of time creating this scary monster and hiding the scary monster behind a closet. But if your audience members walk through the haunted house and they never decide to go to the closet, then you've wasted a whole lot of time, money, and resources designing that monster that no one really sees or that maybe the audience is too afraid to even open the door. But if you can be explicit about there is this closet, there's something behind it, you know, and help an audience be more transparent about what you're attempting to do with your storytelling, oftentimes then they will, like, They'll walk into the room, they'll see that closet and get that exciting narrative payoffs. That idea of like, oh, actually, sometimes it's really, really useful to be transparent about what we're trying to do with this experience, as opposed to just letting people like run wild in it. I, I wish that I had learned that way, way before. That's analogous to uh, there's a famous thing within filmmaking uh, where um, with Alfred Hitchcock, you know, and it, it comes to the the idea of suspense or surprise, right? And and the the way that it, you know he kind of talks about it is if um, you know if you see somebody put a bomb under a table and you know there's a ticking clock and then you know there's a meeting that's happening, um, you know that's suspense, right? If all of a sudden you're in a meeting and then the bomb goes off you know, obviously that's surprise, but with the suspense, it creates a tension that's really valuable, you know, cinematically that can be very powerful. And what you're talking about there is, is, is kind of analogous, right? It's a, it's a similar thing. You're, you're basically saying there's this element of potential secrecy and this opportunity for transparency. And within that transparency, you can have a amazing, uh, results that sometimes it's not holding all the cards to your chest. It's being, uh, you know, calculated in terms of how you allow people to know that uh, something is happening. And that's interesting too, because it, it mentions, you know, you kind of hear it earlier in what you were saying about agency, you know, and having agency within an interactive based experience. So 
Um, I think on that note, we'll make sure that we leave kind of a closet door that we tell everybody that they <laughs> definitely should go in, but uh, that what they find on the other side, that's left to be designed by anybody who happens to be listening. So on that note, I want to thank you very much, Michael, for taking the time. Oh, thank you. Oh, it's always a delight to talk to you. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in exploring new forms and functions of storytelling, make sure to check out Columbia DSL's new prototyping community. You can find out more information at digitalstorytellinglab.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Columbia University School of the Arts Digital Storytelling Lab. Special thanks to Peter English for composing our theme.